Hey you, it's me Irina from The Family. I'm very excited to share with you an amazing fireside chat we had at The Family in Berlin with Sujay Tile. Sujay is the CEO of Frontier Car Group, one of the most underrated Berlin startups and a hell of a founder. He's an impressive guy, even went to Harvard at 15 years old. And he's moving fast. Actually, if you're used to Berlin bureaucracy speed, this might come as a shock. Frontier Car Group is boldly tackling Africa, Latin America and Asia by promising to sell used vehicles within 45 minutes, paperwork included. And by the way, the company raised 58 million in funding and is pushing full steam ahead to expand their business. Curious about the challenges startups face when entering emerging markets? Lucky you, Suji together with Balthazar, our director at The Family, are here to share valuable insights with us. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everyone, thank you. Uh, thank you Hugo for the introduction. So my name is Balthazar, I've been working at The Family for the past four years, uh, mainly doing the selection of startups that want to join our program, our family, uh, and then uh, spending most of my time actually helping them on the issues they have, uh, which, uh, and on which we get good uh, and they uh, usually are not when it's the first time. So like hiring the first employees, raising funds, going international, etc. So you've got a quick description of who Suj is. We'll talk more about it uh, later. The figures talk for themselves, uh, being in five geographies, raising more than 200 million, etc. And I want to put it a little bit into perspective to what we have learned at the family helping companies go abroad. So. Going international is something that a lot of startup founders talk about uh, and it looks not too difficult uh, from the outside. And I spend a lot of time with founders telling me that they just need to translate the website, hire someone there to do marketing. It's actually not that difficult. Uh, in our experience, it's much, much harder than it seems. Uh, and we've done the mistakes ourselves, advising companies to go abroad when it was actually too early for them. Uh, that was like basically two or three years ago. We had our crazy ambition, Euro Europe ambition, and we pushed a couple of companies to go. Of course, it was the, the founders' choices, but like four of them went in like three months, and they all came back to France. Um, so we've learned that it's really difficult. It's difficult for a lot of reasons. The first is that for the founders, you're actually leaving a ship that still doesn't know how to sell on its own to go to another place and try to build another ship. The second is that the infrastructure locally is sometimes very different, and this we can talk a lot with Sujay later. Uh, the third is that it actually, the local competition is pretty high, uh, and you need some money. Uh, and the fourth is that the, you need an intimate knowledge of what the new country you're entering in is, uh, and this is actually uh, very, very painful. Um, so the advice we have now for founders is to go international when they know how their mother works and they have a, a kind of a repeatable uh, sales process at home uh, and then they can start to expand. There are many ways on how to choose the country you want to enter in and this we'll discuss later because uh, the, the way they do it is very interesting. Um, on the infrastructure side, um, I've worked at Rocket Internet at some point. We uh, launched uh, ventures all around the world. I can tell you that depending on the country you're in, uh, everything you can use uh, is very different. So if you're an entrepreneur here, you can use Stripe to accept payments. If you launch in Nigeria, Stripe isn't there. Uh, if there's a lot of cash, you need to build cash on delivery. Uh, if you do e-commerce, everything is very, very, very different and you can't rely on it. So it's, you need actually to build the infrastructure together with um, the business uh, that you're in. Uh, it's also sometimes a very uh, big opportunity. I think WhatsApp was so successful because they realized that using a technology called Java to mobile would let them enter a lot of uh, second developing countries, which made them a huge success in countries like Brazil, uh, which then turned it into a massive success. Um, but there, yeah, in terms of technology, uh, infrastructure, even here, uh, you see using so forth, you, less le you use less credit cards in France. Uh, it's, uh, 
it's really hard. At Facebook, they have a funny way of um, looking at the differences between infrastructure in different countries. They have something that they called Edge Tuesdays. So at the Facebook headquarters in San Francisco, the speed of the internet is slowed down to Edge so that people understand how difficult it is to use the service uh, in developing countries uh, and to make everything better. So infrastructure is very different. Um, the knowledge of how the country works is very, very different. There's a big French startup called Blablacar. Basically, they allow uh, you, uh, you know it, it's in Germany also. Uh, and at one point, they, started to, they wanted to enter India. And so they did this research. Uh, it's a very big country. There are not enough uh, public transportation. There are quite a lot of cars, uh, but not enough for the whole population. So it seemed like a perfect place to enter. And they actually spent quite a lot of money trying to enter the market. And then I met one investor that asked me, have you ever been to India? I said, yes, once. He said, have you ever seen an empty car? And I said, no. Actually, every car is full with five to more people. Uh, and Blavica would never work there. And this kind of, this seems very obvious, but they still like, spend a couple tens of millions to enter there. Uh, and every country has its own uh, very specific things uh, that you need to know and yet you, you can't really rely, um, that you can't really know before going there. Um, so for a lot of founders, going abroad means relying on their own time, which is really difficult to allocate, or hiring people there. Uh, the hiring process is difficult also, uh, because you, it's much more difficult to judge, uh, but to get a trust relationship from someone that's not from your culture. Uh, plus, uh, if, you don't, if you do that incorrectly, you don't know if the information you get from the ground is because your business is not right, or it's because the person you've hired doesn't know how to sell what you're doing. And a lot of time, our founders got answers like, no, we are missing uh, sales material, the pitch is not good, the price is too high, that doesn't work that way in that country. And when they actually went there and spent the time themselves, they figured out it was actually completely different uh, problems uh, and they could adapt the product. And the third part, the last point that makes it very difficult is that competition has become very local. Uh, I think today the cost for entrepreneurship is very low. If you want to start, you need three founders, maybe a couple tens of thousands of euros to make a business. Uh, which means that when you enter a new market and you locate your own money, that the money you raised, uh, you're going to face another company that does the same and that only needs three founders, one, two, three founders, whatever you want, uh, and a seed round with one or two million euros to actually be a very serious competitor. Uh, and this, if you raise 20 million at home and you want to expand in five countries, that means you have one or two million for five countries plus half for your own market, uh, which means uh, the competition is really hard and the people you hire locally, they need to fight against people whose life it is to be your competitor. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about it, makes it um, a big challenge um, to, um, to conquer these new markets. And you see the American startups uh, coming here uh, they came after like Series C, Series D, uh, where they raised like hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions, um, and they still have a uh, hard time uh, conquering like Europe, uh, especially uh, in the case of Uber, uh, which is not only challenged by regulation, but also uh, by local companies. I don't know if you have, you have my taxi here. In France, we have four competitors, including Taxify, uh, that are all as big as Uber is uh, in the city. So now I would like you to give a big round of applause to get uh, Sujay on stage. <laughs> Sujay, welcome. Thank you for being here. You started really young, uh, doing things that people of your age were not really doing, like working in a chemistry lab, then entering Harvard at 15, then working for different startups, co-founding IO.com, which has become a huge success, and then um, coming here uh, to yeah. Berlin to start the Frontier Car Group. Um, how did you start deciding that you were going to build your own pass 
And how did you, like there's the saying that to say that on the internet, everyone can be a dog, yeah. uh, which means you can do business anonymously. Uh, how did you just go beyond the hurdle of being younger and like looked upon by the others? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. And thanks for everyone for coming. Um, it's not typical that I guess an American moves to Europe. It's usually the other way around, but I, I think that's changing um, now, which is really cool to see, especially in a city like Berlin. Um, you know, I think, uh, first of all, back in the day, I think what got this entire entrepreneurship journey started of mine was this, um, you know, ba back in the day, one of my mentors calls me, calls me the honey badger. And that's his nickname for me. And um, the reason for that is I think it came with a sense of just being really fearless when I was really young of approaching people. Um, and, uh, and the honey badger term stems from a funny YouTube video. But the idea of, you know, when I was young, my, my, my parents who were immigrants from India to the U.S., they, you know, taught my brother and I that, you know, despite how old you are, despite, you know, your education or whatever, you can still reach out to whoever you want just to learn and just to get advice from people. And so when I was, you know, really young, you know, 10 or 11 years old, um, I ended up, you know, cold emailing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of professors that lived in, I lived in New York at the time. And uh, in the New York area, I'm asking if I could just work with them. I didn't need to get paid. It wasn't about, you know, money. It was more just being in an environment where I could soak up things and learn. And, um, what happened? I mean, it happened that the, you know, one professor responded out of probably 300 and, uh, and allowed me to work in his laboratory after school. So I was in grade school and he would, after school, my mother would drive me to the lab and then on weekends, my mother would drive me to the lab and take me home. And, um, and I worked there for, you know, more than five years at that same lab. And in fact, it was illegal that I could work there. You couldn't work legally at this lab until I was 16, but this professor just didn't know, didn't know that rule. And, um, and so, uh, and whenever there were inspections, I would leave, and then I would come back right after they were over. And so, I mean, but it was just a sense of fearlessness that, you know, that first time it was a success, it kind of, it, it makes you, it riles you up to do more and more and more. And so, uh, um, and I love that experience. And you know, that allowed me to publish some scientific papers. It allowed me to, um, you know, I applied to Harvard when I was 15, ended up getting in, and, um, you know, went to university when I was really young. And, um, and, then, and then similarly, just to link that to entrepreneurship, you know, my favorite part of the project that I was doing was it was, a, it was an energy project, very unrelated to, to selling used cars in emerging markets. But, um, but it, I, I loved how a technology that, could once be an idea could actually be seen, like can be held. And I, I thought that commercialization process of an idea to a product was, was fascinating. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something in entrepreneurship. And you know, this was luck, but my junior year at Harvard was the, the third year of school, was the first year that Peter Thiel offered his 20 under 20 fellowship, which for people, if they're not familiar, is a fellow, it was a radical, thought project by this, you know, now Donald Trump supporter of like the, um, you know, of a, a paying 20 kids 100 grand <clears throat> to drop out of school and start a company. And um, I was in the very, very first cohort of that. And so, um, and that was again a huge risk where I cold emailed him, I cold emailed other people in his network and was able to be one of those fellows. And that's how, you know, I got to move to the Bay, work on Hired.com and uh, yeah, start my entrepreneurial journey. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've read a lot about the, this first uh, Teal Fellowship. Sure. Uh, actually, there are quite, I don't remember the other names of the people, but there are a lot of people that actually succeeded. Uh, and I think on a similar thing at the family, we launched a program that's similar, uh, except that we don't pay people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're always surprised at the quality of first uh, batches of programs. Same with the first batch at YC. Sure. Like the, and I wonder if you know, if you, if you thought about it, and if you think it's because it's people that are able to take risk without the, some credentials from the outside. Like just being able to do whatever you want mm -hmm. without anyone telling you that it's great because there have been like 20 years of Harvard students doing something good. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the, 
On the specific nature of the program, I think that the first cohort attracted a bunch of really young, ambitious kids like me who were just signing up for a program that was totally unproven. And not only was it unproven, but it was unstructured at the time. Yep. You know, it's become more structured over time. And I, I, you know, I, I really respect this program. Um, and over time, it's gained a lot more prominence. You know, another student, uh, student, I should say, I don't know, anti-student um, who went through the program is a friend named Ritesh Agarwal, who started a company called Oyo Rooms, which, you know, is now a five plus billion dollar company. He's 24, um, which operates, you know, in China, Malaysia, India, China, China, India, Malaysia, now Europe building you know, budget hotel chains. And so there's been huge successes out of this program. Um, but the first cohort was really this ragtag bunch who didn't have any proven success. But I think we'd had to improvise to make it. You know, for example, stupid things. I mean, we moved out to California and no one had any friends in California because all their friends were in school. And so, um, and so everyone just holed up in a house together. And no one could rent a house because we had no credit history and we had no income. <laughs> And so, you know, we all had to use our parents' income or fake it um, in order to even get rented a house there. Many people didn't have their driver's license. And, you know, how do you get around in California without a driver's license? So it was, uh, it was a very ragtag bunch of, bunch, of, bunch of kids that had to improvise, and I think that that ended up leading to a lot of success in, in the startup world. So we're obviously big believers in the European ecosystem uh, and sure. their, its capacity to build very, very big companies, even though there has not been so many exits yet. Uh, I think the Spotify's, Adyans are mm -hmm. still paving the way. Do you still feel like you're one of the pioneers, like coming from the US to Europe? Uh, and maybe you can explain how you chose Berlin to launch your new venture? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, first of all, I mean, Berlin, I lived in the Valley for a few years um, when I was doing Hire.com, and I find Berlin to be more exciting, more inspiring. Um, I love Silicon Valley, don't get me wrong, but I think it is more inspiring, more inviting, more diverse, and more connected to the world than Silicon Valley is. I mean, one of the things, for example, right now, what is it, like 7 p.m. or something, Silicon Valley is literally just waking up. I mean, it's 9 a.m. over there, right? And so if you just think about how disconnected they are, even in terms of time zone, um, most of the world is sleeping by the time they wake up. And I think that, that that really struck me as a reason for, you know, Europe has this really interesting niche of being at the center of the world. You know, London, Berlin, Paris, all, Europe just has this really cool niche. And that's why, you know, and that's one of the biggest reasons we chose to be here, because we were going to be a global company and we needed to have accessibility to the whole world. We needed to be awake when the whole world was awake. Um, and we needed to be within, you know, flight distance of most of the world without killing ourselves. And, um, and Europe was just an obvious choice for that. So I think what, what Europe lacked until recently was just that discovery, was that discovery of the niche of this, this continent is the connectivity to the whole world. And I think that that's why you have successes like, um, you know, like Rocket Internet, you have successes um, you know, like Auto One because they can be here and operate across multiple different geographies and grow really quickly because they're right in the center of the world. And I thought that was a huge niche that's still being pioneered. So um, that's what, A, attracted me to Europe. B, very frankly, it's a lot cheaper. Um, a lot cheaper. I mean, you know, we were discuss I was discussing like rents per square meter a few minutes ago with you and a couple others. I mean, it's just, I was doing the calculation back there, I, I think in feet, not meters, still, I'm still American. But the, um, but I was kind of calculating in Berlin, our office is, you know, I was just telling, we're getting a new office now before it was 18, euros per square meter and now we're taking a thousand square foot space square meter space and it's like 25 and in san francisco back calculates to about 85 or 90. i mean just just in terms of just in terms of how much you can stretch a dollar it doesn't go that far so so i think it's a lot cheaper to build here and the lastly i think that you just have more inspiring people because it's more global it's a lot more diverse our office you know we have 1100 people at fcg now and um and, uh, but here in Berlin and Sweden, we have, you know, what, 60, 65? And we have 29 ethnicities. I mean, and German's like number 10. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I love that. Yeah, uh, we're fighting quite hard for our companies to think global from day one yeah. uh, and not be a, a group of 25 French people in the same room uh, saying that they're going to be global one day. Yeah. Um, and so, 
But, but it's really hard. I guess it takes a foreigner to come to Germany or to France to actually connect everyone together, uh, which ov uh, hopefully is going to pave the way for other entrepreneurs uh, here. One of the main things that people tell us is lacking is the, like, s let's say, head off or C-levels that already have done it mm -hmm. uh, because the local ecosystem can't provide them. Are you bringing a lot of people from abroad to join the, the journey? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's a great question. I think yes and no. And, and the reason I say yes and no is because, you know, we're not proactively trying to bring people from abroad to Berlin. We have seen a demand of people wanting to move to Berlin like I've Thanks never seen Trump. before. Since Trump, since Brexit also, because in Brexit a lot of people who otherwise would have gone to London are now coming to Berlin because they're uncertain about being able to work in London long term. Not many people realize that Berlin is the second largest city in Europe. I mean, it's uh, you know bigger than Paris, bigger than Stockholm, bigger than Amsterdam, um, if you don't count Moscow and, and Istanbul, which um, are in my mind Asian. But the uh, but the um, but yeah, it's huge, huge, huge city, and so this is the natural next place. It's English speaking, um, so I think I think that there's there's an amazing there's amazing wealth of talent that's actually coming into Berlin. The downside of that is it's becoming a little bit more expensive to hire people, but it's fine. Um, you just get much more quality talent. And then you have more VC dollars coming in, you have more startups coming in. So I think the ecosystem is literally at its nascency right now, and it's growing significantly, and a lot of people want to be here. So I would say out of the 65 people here, I mean, we have, we've probably moved in maybe 40, which is a lot. But I would say of that 40, about 35 wanted to proactively come to Berlin. So we only had to ask five people to move. Which, yeah. Sometimes Hugo calls uh, Berlin a Ponzi scheme yeah. where smart people came and there was not, no one, so they had to find other smart people to yeah. come <laughs> and now there are an awful lot uh, of smart people here. Um, so I guess here in Berlin, opening a model like the one you have, sure. a lot of people compare you to Rocket Internet mm -hmm. because it's a proven business model or kind of proven, like in its essence, was Auto One uh, and replicating it in different geographies. Um, I know you have an approach that's quite different, sure. especially having worked at Rocket myself. Yeah. Um, how do you decide which place to open and how do you um, decide who to hire as a founder? Um, Rocket would go McKinsey, I understood you go a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I have a lot of respect for McKinsey, I have a lot of respect for Rocket, we have ex-employees of both um, at the company. but. You know, I think, first of all, there is Rocket, at least, you know, I think one of the, one of the really good things that Rocket has done, again, I have a lot of respect for Rocket, um, one of the really good things that they've done is educated a lot of developing markets and markets that were developed but maybe nascent in entrepreneurship about entrepreneurship, about starting a company, about capital, about models that exist around the world. Um, whether they have failed or not, they have educated the market in a great way. And, uh, and I think we've piggybacked up a lot, a lot on that. You know, I think when we saw what Rocket was doing, we saw a few fundamental flaws, at least, that wouldn't work in our business. And we tried to change those in how we structured the business. You know, we never wanted to be the auto one of every emerging market in the world. It's not our goal. It's not our mission. We, it's, we don't want to be in every market around the world, and we're, we also don't, we're not exactly Auto One's model. So we're a very different company than just combining Rocket and Auto One. You know, we basically took it from a different lens, which was my co-founders and I, I have two co-founders, Peter and Andre and myself, and we basically were just really passionate about emerging markets. You know, for us, I'm, my parents are originally from India. I grew up, was born and raised in the U.S., spent a lot of time abroad. Um, Peter Lindholm, you know, did six years of work across Latin America and Africa when he was an investment manager at Shinovic. Um, and then Andre, who's our CTO, used to be the director of engineering at Auto One. So we had a really good kind of team of people who were passionate about global expansion. And in emerging markets itself, what we saw was this, we, we can get into this in a more detailed way if you want, but we just saw a massive opportunity for this model. We saw a rising middle class, unbelievable talent, um, huge, huge, huge markets. I mean, massive markets and used cars and other things as well. Um, but zero entrepreneurship. And I'd say, I shouldn't say zero, but very little entrepreneurship. 
And a lot of that is because there's very little to no capital in a place like Nigeria or Pakistan. Um, you know, venture capital there is, I don't know, it's like the CEO of like Coca-Cola Pakistan who gives out 100K checks. That's what venture capital is. And, um, and so th there's no capital for things to start. And because things don't start, there's no competition. And, um, and so we saw huge gaping opportunities. So that's why we decided to do what we're doing. And then when we looked at Rocket in terms of structuring, we said the two biggest flaws we see is how the business is run and how people are incentivized. You know, I think number one is if you look at the typical Rocket business, a lot of it's run out of Berlin. You know, they have huge teams in Berlin. You've seen massive offices. I mean, their Rocket headquarters is a massive building. And this works for some business models where you can put operations, marketing, strategy, business development, design, engineering, everything under one roof. And so you have some dude who doesn't speak Vietnamese doing online marketing for a Vietnamese car company based in Berlin. And that's fine sometimes, but for us, we knew this was a very, very localized model. And so we needed to have the bulk of the talent be where our operations were going to be. So if you look at how FCG is structured today against that, in Berlin, we only have technology and engineering. That's it. Technology, engineering, design. These are things that's very difficult to hire a solid back-end or front-end engineer in a place like Lagos, Nigeria. So that's what we saw as the niche that we have to have in Berlin. But all operations, strategy, whatever, happens in our local market. And I think that's extremely important in terms of structuring. And then the second thing to go hand-in-hand hand with that is incentivization. Is I think that, you know, Rocket's phenomenal at building Rocket University, which is basically, you know, get some 23-year-old, 24-year-old, you know, student out of school, Goldman, McKinsey, Harvard, whatever, put them in Ho Chi Minh and just let them build a company. And it works sometimes, don't get me wrong, but for us, and they're not that incentivized, you know, they own a couple percent of the company. We wanted our CEOs on the ground to be CEOs, not GMs. So every single person in our market is a CEO, not a GM. And, um, and B, they are huge owners in the company. And by doing that, we were able to hire probably the top one or two most recognizable entrepreneurs of the markets we're in and build huge businesses quickly because we incentivize them properly. So sorry, that was a longer answer than you wanted, but no, no, it's that was, uh, that's, that's what, that's what you, we were doing. You're the one that's invited yeah. to talk. <laughs> uh, I, I, I relate to a lot of what you said because I did online marketing for Rocket in Ocean, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I found quite weird, but still. Yeah. Um, so today you're in five different geographies, I think, the strategy of attacking uh, new markets has been described by one of your investors, OLX, uh, as the margin approach. I think that if you were uh, coming from margin, you look at Earth, and you have no prior judgments on uh, who is who, uh, you would decide to open India, Pakistan, uh, Brazil first. Uh, do you do it really in this very analytical way? But do you also do it based on opportunity of people that come to you? Because I guess now you're known for letting CEOs have significant stakes in companies that you back. So you must have a lot of people wanting to build these businesses anywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, we, we only start businesses from scratch, right? We've never, we've never just invested into a business. And so we're not an investor. We basically choose to enter a market and then find a partner to be the CEO. And so um, up until now, up until now, I think there's always room to change. Um, we, we take two approaches to starting a new country, and, and some work, and some honestly have failed. Um, so I don't think this is a science. But we basically saw that there is a data-driven way to do this, you know, where we see this model could work extremely well, and then B, um, a regional hub-driven model. And I'll explain that in a second. But, you know, the first thing that my co-founders and I did was we went to 36 countries over the first four months of FCG, 36 emerging markets. And we made a list of 400 questions of what we thought would make this model work or not. Anything from how is a car bought and sold in this market to what is the competition to what is the taxation when you sell your car? What's insurance like? What, you know, um, how easy is it to incorporate a business? You know, anything like that. What are labor laws in this market? And so anything from the actual specific business model all the way down to um, the macroeconomic situation and, you know, doing business in the country. So, for example, a country like Brazil would probably rank pretty low on doing business in the country because it's pretty tough to do business in Brazil, but would high rank really high in terms of market opportunity. And we chose because it was kind of net negative that we chose not to enter Brazil. So we're not in Brazil um, yet. 
but we chose not to start there. Instead, so we, we ended up narrowing that down to a set of about eight, nine countries, and that's ranging from LATAM, Africa, and Asia. And, um, and then from there, we took the regional hub approach, which was, you know, we had identified, for example, in Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, Uganda as potential markets. And we said, well, let's just pick, let's pick one, let's pick the biggest, and let's start there. Because I think if we can build the biggest business in Nigeria, then I think there's going to be synergies with the other markets, and I think we can leverage the same brand, the same team, and the same brand recognition um, across these markets. So Wendy ended up picking, as you can probably imagine, Mexico and Latin America, the largest country in Latin America, the largest country in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is Nigeria. We picked the largest country in Southeast Asia, which was Indonesia. Um, and then we took a couple wildcard bets, which were Pakistan and Turkey. And um, Turkey was just a massive standalone business, so we thought it would be a good, good bet. And we chose Pakistan as well. Um, it ended up being that Turkey has not worked out, so we ended up just shutting down Turkey recently. We haven't announced that yet, but um, we ended up sh shutting down Turkey. Um, the macroeconomic situation has been very difficult, and you know, we probably made some mistakes ourselves. So this is not an exact science, but we knew that if we took multiple bets, that some or many are not going to work out. And that thesis has panned out. And recently we opened three more countries, which were Colombia, Argentina, and India. And so now our footprint's at uh, eight countries. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. A, lo a lot of time we tell founders that whenever, that not to really change their model, yep. if their gross, weekly gross or monthly gross is still uh, at the level they want. Uh, so I guess you're growing very fast in all the markets you're in. When do you decide to open a new market? Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think that for us, it's, there's, there's no, again, there's no science behind it, and we may prove, have proven to be a little bit too early. But I think that it is when the team can support it without dropping duties in a current market, and B, when we think that we have the market opportunity and, and bandwidth to do it as a tech team and as an organization. Our technology is different in every single country. The backbone, the 90% of it is the same. That's what we build here. But every country has a localized set of tech. And it takes a lot, of, a lot of resources to build that last 10%. And so we would never build a country until we knew that we had the bandwidth to do that. So I think, I think that, was, that was one. Um, and then B is the team. So for example, we have now in Latin America, we have four countries, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, and Argentina. And we have an extraordinary CEO who runs Latin America. And, uh, and he sits on top of the leaders of Mexico, the leaders of Chile, the leaders of Colombia, and the leaders of Argentina. He's somebody who founded a $500 million business prior to this. Like, he, really successful Latin American entrepreneur. And so we expanded way quicker in LATAM than we did in Africa, where we're just in Nigeria still, because we have someone like that who has the bandwidth to be able to do it. Um, India was a little bit different. I mean, as you guys, as you said earlier, you know, we've raised, you know, combined over $100 million from OLX, NASPERS recently, in the last three months. And with them, you know, India, for example, 70% of every single used car in India is sold by OLX, 7-0. And so it just made a lot of sense to try to enter there as quickly as possible because we have an extraordinary partner to do it with. So, different reasons. One of the impressive things you've realized is to uh, raise so much money. Mm -hmm. um, I guess having the talent you have locally helps a lot. Uh, you being already a founder helps a lot. Um, these rounds must have become quite competitive to raise this much. Uh, can you tell us how you handle fundraising, how you were able to sell this vision uh, of the used car marketplace globally, uh, and maybe how you, in the end, picked the investors that would help you the most? Um, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so, first of all, a lot of people ask us why the hell we start a company like Mexico and Nigeria and Pakistan when they have no natural, like, obvious synergies between them. And a lot of this was actually capital driven. And, and I, I don't make, I would not recommend to a founder that they take, they, they figure out what VCs like and therefore do that. That's not a good way to do things. But the one thing we recognize, which I said earlier, which is why our markets are com non-competitive, and that's a lucrative thing, is because there's a lack of VC money in these markets. So we knew that if we were going to be successful in a place like Pakistan or Nigeria, we had to find a way to unlock capital from investors who had never invested into a Pakistani company or a Nigerian company and had no idea what the risks were or the macro scene is. And we had to find a way to de-risk that a little bit for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be comfortable with that. 
And so the first reason why we started multiple countries was so that there was a hedging of risk, frankly, is that you know, if one of our five initial countries worked, we'd be a multi-billion dollar company, one. The markets were that big. And so we said, okay, let's take a couple shots on goal, and that'll help investors feel a little bit de-risked. And B is we structured it appropriately. We're a US company, we're a US Delaware C Corp that sits on top of subsidiaries in all these markets. And that's really important for investors to invest into a legal structure that they understand because that's what protects investors from their, you know, their rights. And so, um, so legal structuring was really big in terms of you know, attracting capital from the West um, into, into these kind of markets. And there's still stories, I'm just gonna get into this, crazy stories from these markets that we still haven't told many of our investors that we have to go through, like, uh, you know, just random stuff that you would never think about dealing with. Like, you know, I've had a policeman bribe me for a million dollars in Nigeria to open our business there. And I ended up having to ask for a bribe of a million dollars to open a business there. And I ended up having to call the chief of police of Nigeria and, um, and, uh, and settle and uh, in order to get, the, um, to get our business even opened there, right? I mean, incorporating a business, something so simple. Um, these are problems that investors don't want to deal with. Anyway, so when we, built, when we did that, we had, you know, a really, we had a really powerful story, which was that this model would be fantastic in these markets. There's a proven leader, Auto One, that's shown that in developed markets this can happen. And we, I think, even have a deeper value proposition than them which is not only convenience and price, but also a lot of transparency and safety to the used car markets in these countries. And so I think our value prop was good. These markets were clearly booming. And I think that a lot of investors wanted to get exposure to emerging markets early, and that helped us a lot. Um, and I also think Berlin is still at its nascency, and it still was then. And I think being a Berlin-based startup actually also helped us a lot, being very honest with you. So I think in the beginning of the business, what we did for our seed round was um, we ended up raising a $2.9 million seed round, and that was, a that was a led by a firm called NEA, which is a huge VC firm based in Silicon Valley. Um, this was something where you've identified a lot of VC funds that have seed practices. You know, a lot of huge VC funds have like $1.5 million or below check abilities that are very, very, very quick processes. They're usually run by one or two partners. And for them, it doesn't mean anything. They're a billion dollar plus fund. But it's easier systems, it's easier progress for you guys to be able to raise a quick round of capital like us um, and get a good brand name on your cap table. And once someone like that leads the round, the rest you know, fell into place pretty quickly. And then our Series A, um, we had to have more lead time for that. And you have to have really strong, you know, not really strong, but decent initial metrics, very, very early metrics. We ran a process, um, concise process. It was planned out, it was timed where we sent you know, our materials to a few funds, got really deep with a few, and then you know, probably my favorite investor in the world, Balderton, um, you know, ended up leading our Series A. And, uh, and yeah, and then I think once you get one firm to take emerging market risk, others are more willing to. So. How do you get a firm like Nia out? Yeah. If you kept their arm out? What do you mean? Like yeah. it's, it's, you said they, like, they can do early stage checks, sure. which I know. They can do Europe, which is where also for an American fund, uh, but they can also do 100 million euro checks. Yeah. Um, so I guess, did they want to follow? And then you chose European investors to because of what they would bring locally? Mm -hmm. or? I mean, I think, I think a Series A is a very sensitive time for a company because a Series A is something that's your first big round of capital. It probably means, it's probably the hardest to get, in my opinion but it's also the one that you're gonna work closest with. You know, I talk to our lead partner at Balderton probably more than I talk to any other investor of ours. And um, because they're marrying you so early, like really early. And I think that that's really important. So for us, having a European fund was really important because we were Berlin-based. And so we were saying, we were thinking, listen, we want a firm that I can see once a month. I can pop to London and see them you know, every week if I wanted to. And that was really important to us to have a European fund. And there's not many European funds compared to Silicon Valley funds. Yeah. It's growing yeah, now, I, but, I uh, know. but um, you know, we, we, we cast it a smaller net on purpose. Yeah, I think the number of funds here is still very low yeah. uh, and pretty local. Um, the tier one European funds at Series A, there must be like 10 to 15 of them. Yep. Uh, and then uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different um, power struggle with the founders. And then in the valley. 
I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, so in, you mentioned safety uh, as a different value proposition in uh, places like Mexico, I guess. Uh, how do you adapt the project locally uh, and how free is, are the teams to do so? That's a good question. Um, so for, for those who don't really know what we do, I mean, in 10 seconds is we basically allow consumers in the markets we operate in to sell their vehicles in 45 minutes. No questions asked. Every single car we will make an offer for. And the way we do it is basically we have actual physical stores throughout countries like Mexico. So we have, you know, over 60 stores, for example, in Nigeria, where you can literally drive your car into, we'll quickly inspect your car, and then we auction it off on your behalf. And so we're merely an auction house um, that performs a whole service end-to-end. -end. And the reason that's significant is because prior to that, in a place like Mexico, if you wanted to sell your car, and in Mexico, millions and millions and millions of cars are sold every year, you only had two ways to do it. A is you could put it on classifieds. Um, it takes you three weeks to sell your car. 50 people come to your house. Um, it's probably the number one rate of theft of used cars in emerging markets. Because think about it. Someone shows up to your house with $5,000 of cash, and you have two pieces of paper that indicate that you own the car. That's how, that's how things work there. Um, the alternative way is you could drive your car to a dealership and ask them for an offer, but they'll typically give you a very low offer. So the traditional method for millions and millions of used cars is choosing between price and convenience. And for the first time, we're trying to offer a safe and transparent middle ground to that where you can sell your car in 45 minutes in a very safe way. So the safety and transparency value prop was massive for us, was massive for us. And in fact, you know, we've been able to build a much bigger moat, I think, you know, in our business than the same business models in the U.S. or Europe because people trust us. You know, in Nigeria, we just did a brand study of our brand there, which is cars45.com. Not very creative, but um, the... Uh, Why 45? Because uh, we sell your car in 45 minutes. Okay. And, um, and uh, you know, we have a 90-plus percent visibility right now. I mean, we launched the business 18 months ago there. And so it's, it's very new, but it's extraordinarily powerful. Um, so that was, really, that was really important for us. And, uh, and, and because we have that ability to be trustworthy, it's allowed us to launch ancillary products that have picked up very quickly. So for example, when a customer sells us their car in Nigeria, we'll instantly pre-approve them for a loan on their next car, and we'll take a margin on that. When a dealer buys a car from us, we'll actually loan them the money to buy the car from us, and then we'll only collect once they've sold it to someone else. So we're actually taking more and more revenue per transaction um, because people trust us, and people are now are willing to take money from us to buy or sell cars. Um, so that's been very powerful. So I think um, so. I think that was the first part. I forgot the second part of the question. Sorry. I guess you forgot it also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, how, uh, how much do you allow you the local teams to tweak oh, the sorry, product? Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of strategy, marketing, and operations, almost entirely. You know, if 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 in Indonesia and things work differently in, in Turkey. 70% of our dealers had iPhones. And in Mexico, 80% of our dealers have Android phones. I mean, it's just, there's different things that happen in markets. Um, in Pakistan and in Indonesia, they celebrate Ramadan. In Mexico, they celebrate Christmas. And so you have to you run different promotions at different times. Um, what else? We have different celebrity ambassadors that do different things with our companies. You know, we have these really weird, like, tier three Nigerian celebrities that are our brand ambassadors there, who I've never heard of, but everybody there locally has heard of. Um, we sponsor all of Game of Thrones in Nigeria because <laughs> it's the cheapest country to sponsor it because no one can afford HBO, but they all pirate it. And so, um, and so we get great brand visibility for very low cost. So things like this, like I would have never known, and no one in Berlin would have ever known, but they, they figure it out. On the tech side, also a lot of flexibility. Um, that they have to coordinate with our team in Berlin, of course, but the beauty of having very few countries is that if you want a feature built, we'll get it built within a day. So, um, so we're very, yeah, we, we, we're, we're very different country to country. So today you're at the stage where the company is very big, well, I'd say like big, and hopefully it will become very big. So that means you need to sell like sustainability to your investors. How do you tell them again? How do you reassure them against the trend of autonomous vehicles? Yeah. Obviously, I know it's not going to happen in the next five years. Yeah. Uh, you could even think like 20, 30. How do you go with this? 
Sure, it's, it's funny. We had a um, we had a really prominent actor. I won't say his name. Uh, come to our office. Who you know how like a lot of actors are investing now in the U.S. It's a new trendy thing to do. Um, come to our office and was really taking a look at our Series A to invest. And at the end of the day, he passed because he's like, oh, autonomous cars are going to totally outrule all used cars. And I was like, you've never been to an emerging market if you think that, if you think that, <laughs> if you think that a used car can function on the, or an autonomous car can function on the road in Nigeria. Our office address in Nigeria is like the red building next to the blue tree, three blocks down, like right after the bank, after the McDonald's. Like that's our official postal address. And um, like imagine plugging that into your autonomous car. The, uh, so I think we're still a good, good 30, 40 years away from that. Um, but also not only that, but coupled with that, you have in our markets the fastest growing middle income. You know, you have consumers, young consumers, who are making more money than ever before. And so you have Nigerian car ownership is the highest it's ever been in history. And it's the second fastest growing used car market in the world. People probably don't know that. Um, Mexico is one of the top five fastest growing used car markets in the world. So I think more than actually autonomous vehicles is car ownership and used car sales are just going through the roof. So, um, so I think it's been really helpful for us to do that. Um, and as these markets become more touristic too, you have rental car companies that are increasing in prominence in these countries. And we actually buy a lot of cars from rental car companies because, you know, for example, if Hertz or Avis, huge companies, want to take their fleet, take their cars that you guys rent when you go to a place, any new country, after a certain amount of time, they want to get rid of that car. In developed markets, they have very specialized channels to do that. In places like even in India to this day, they don't. And so they'll just sell them to us. And that's great because we can get 500 cars at once. And, uh, and, uh, and that those businesses are just increasing in size as well. So helping us. There there's another prominent model uh, in your industry, which is the real peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you decide to go on that one rather than the real peer-to-peer? -peer? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, on our platform, when you guys sell cars, um, the only people that are allowed to buy cars from us are businesses or dealers. So we actually don't sell to individuals. And the reason for that is, first of all, it's a financial decision. Um, you know, the marketing of selling your car to a service and buying your car from a service is two totally different channels of marketing. And versus, and, and the average consumer, what, you buy a car maybe once every three years. And so if you captured a consumer to buy a car from you, they buy a car, then he won't ever see them for the next three years. Versus dealers, they buy cars from us every single day, right? So in the startup term, like lifetime value, LTV, of a dealer on the buy side is way higher. So we try to maximize that, that LTV for better unit economics. Um, on the C2C side, I, I just think that, you know, we needed to identify our core customer, which was the dealer. And it made sense from a financial perspective, but also dealers started getting really pissed off when we started allowing consumers on the auction because those were their customers, right? And so all of a sudden they were competing with their own customers and they hated that. So we decided to take that off and, um, and we're only, you know, we're only consumer to business or again, like rental fleets to business. That means the on the buy side, they also your competitors uh, on acquiring customers. Yeah, on the buying side, um, yeah, on the buying side, where our competitors are basically the traditional auction houses, which don't really exist in these markets. Like if you think about how an average dealer gets their car in a place like Jakarta, Indonesia, they don't go show up for an auction and put a paddle in the air. Um, you know, they're going on classifieds and trying to buy cars from consumers, and so. Um, yeah, that's 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 traditional channel. You mentioned your co-founders a couple times. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder, like, did you meet them in Berlin? Did you meet them anywhere else? And like, you all together decided to move here. So uh, the only out of the th my co-founder Peter is Swedish and was living in London before, and my co-founder Andre was German and lives in Berlin and lived in Berlin. And he got to be the one that decided where we'd be headquartered. Like, yeah, it's nice and central in the world, it's cheap. But at the end of the day, he basically said, I want to do it in Berlin, so he said, okay. Um, actually, the first time I'd ever been to Berlin ever was the day we started FCG. So, um, yeah, so I'd never <laughs> been there before. I still don't speak a word of German. Um, it's too short to yeah. learn German. The, um, I mean, we started the business only two, two years ago, so it's still, it's still a new business. But the, um, what was I going to say? 
No, I mean, at the end of the day, this is probably like the worst thing of any startup book that you read, which is you, know, you know your co-founders very well before you know a company. I had never met my co-founder and CTO until a week before we started the business, so which is not recommended, but it ended up, you know, God bless us, we worked out. So um, I knew my co-founder Peter quite well, and he knew the co-founder Andre quite well. And he was, this is, we were three perfect kind of legs of a stool. Um, you know, Andre's really nerdy, engineer, leader. Peter's really outgoing and loves to spend time in places like in hostels in Nigeria, which I don't know why he does that. And then, uh, and then, uh, and, uh, and he's, he's just about to have a second kid, but he still does that. And the, um, and, uh, and then I, I think I'm more structured and, you know, um, spend a lot more time with investors and doing business development deals. So I think we had three kind of perfect synergies. And, uh, and the tech guy got to decide where the tech headquarters would be based. <laughs> That's power. So. Uh, have, you, uh, have you made any other very counterintuitive bets like this? Have we made any counterintuitive bets like this? Um, you know, I think that the... That's a good question. Um, you know, we, we, decided, we decided in Indonesia, in Southeast Asia, well, we, we, first of all, we've only ever raised, for the most part, money into FCG, right? I mean, FCG is a very simple structure, right? It's basically like a holding company, and we have a lot of different companies underneath us that are in different company, countries. But the one place we decided to make a different bet was Southeast Asia, and we decided to allow a huge family conglomerate in Southeast Asia directly invest into Indonesia. And that was tough for us because that could really screw up a future transaction. Let's say if they don't want to be a part of it, you know, an investor doesn't want to deal with like a, you know, fighting shareholder, people's incentives are misaligned, whatever, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, it was good business. It was good business because we recognize that in a place like Southeast Asia, and again, our CEO there pushed for this, is that everything is run by like 10 families and malls, gas stations, whatever. And I think that it was really important for us to have people like that on our side. And like people, and also we offered them to invest in FCG. This Indonesian family is like, I don't want anything to do with Nigeria. <laughs> and we said, fine. Um, so they only wanted to invest into that. So we ended up taking capital from them, and so far it's been an okay decision. Um, no, 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 no problems, but, uh, and it's helped tremendously. So, you know, there's, there's strategy elements that I thought I would never do, but I've broken. And, and today your main challenge, I guess, is hiring? Our main challenge, yeah, it's hiring. It's, um, you know, I think, I think what we're trying to figure out now, we may buy our first company. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, that's, that's an interesting challenge for us because we've always launched companies from scratch. So buying our first company would be exciting. But, you know, culturally, how does that work? A big, you know, a big challenge for us, which we still haven't solved yet, frankly, being very honest, is solving the culture thing between Berlin and all of our other companies. And this is a, this is a challenge that I think all companies that have global presences face, is that we have a culture in Berlin. It's really fun. We, do, we just did an annual trip to south of Spain with all the entire company um, you know, for four days and you know, just had fun. And people really, you know, we, we try to create the Silicon Valley camaraderie in a Berlin office. And migrating that culture to offices around the world is very difficult. It's really difficult. Um, and so what my co-founders, my team has tried to do really strongly is we try to spend as much time as possible in the markets. And I spend about 80% of my time on the road and 20% um, of my time here. And, um, and the reason to do that is because culture is very important and we still struggle with it. Yeah, I founders tell me that it's hard to maintain the culture when they get two floors in the same building. Yeah. So I can imagine six locations yeah. and, uh, and five buildings, five floors here. Not just that, but, you know, eight countries, nine countries. Now we have office in Sweden, too. And, you know, and we have 60 inspection locations in each country. Like, you know, this, this, we're very spread out. And you communicate everything in English? Everything's in English, yeah. Um, I, I'm like, I'm, I've, I've picked up enough Spanish to be pretty fluent in Spanish at this point, and then also I speak Urdu in Pakistan, so it's, uh, so you like, in these, I, I can generally you, get around. You'll end up learning German, but, like, yeah, no German, but the others. I've um, other languages to learn before. The one I don't speak is Indonesian, uh, but everything, everything's English most of the time. Cool. Do you guys have questions? 
Hey, so you mentioned um, these great uh, CEOs you hired, like the one guy who sold a business for half a billion. Um, how do you find these guys? And then how do you convince them to join your company and work sort of under you? Well, I think, I think that challenge has evolved because in the beginning of the business, when FCG was zero, we had raised, you know, two million bucks to hire someone with a track record like that at an unknown startup was a much more difficult challenge than it is now. Um, now, at least, you know, we've, people, there's lots of articles, there's, you know, we have over $100 million in the bank. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things that people can, like, feel de-risked so um, we can get more senior talent. Um, you know, frankly, I think that it was a, it was a very similar pitch to as VCs. And it was also incentivizing highly, I think a combination of those two. The guy we hired for Latin America, you know, we spent six and a half months trying to hire. And, you know, I ended up going to Chile. He's based, he was based in Santiago. I ended up going to Chile in, from Berlin. It's a far trip, um, you know, probably four or five times just to sit with him, explain the business. He actually tried to buy and sell his first car in Chile just to see that this actually exists as a pain point and realized it does. And then we ended up hiring him. And I think that just breeds itself. Um, so, yeah, I would say that. Uh, and I, I would say these people work with me, not for me. Um, um, so, yeah, I think, I think that... Uh, being a very flat structure also helps. Hi. Um, I have a question. So coming from Indonesia myself, I know the biggest problem is traffic jam. And when companies like Uber or like sharing companies now, we have like Grab, it's coming in, they really, they really help the, 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 the people there because uh, you don't have to drive uh, long hours again. So how do you see these competitions coming in against um, buying used cars? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, like, you know, one of the Gojek co-founders, which is huge in Indonesia, is an investor in us. Um, we know the Grab and Gojek guys and Uber guys very well. And in fact, we're negotiating a deal with one of them to basically buy a lot of their cars that are off fleet. And so um, I, think it, I think it'll just end up helping us. The, you know, I think, I think that the, these big peer-to-peer -peer kind of ride-sharing businesses in these, in these markets, they are getting more and more prominent. However, that's actually bringing more vehicles into the market than before. And so, um, you know, the typical, the typical Uber driver, Gojek driver, Grab driver in an emerging market does not own their own vehicle. It's very different than a place like Germany. The typical driver there works for an owner who owns like five or six vehicles, and they basically just hire a worker to drive Uber all day. And so, um, so actually car ownership has increased as a result of these peer-to-peer ride-sharing services rather than decreased. Um, that may plateau and dip at some point, but frankly, I mean, the markets are so big that if we can own half a percent of Indonesia's used car market, you know, we'll be a billion dollar plus company just there. Um, can you help me understand the, the reason OLX, for example, in India invested with you guys or in you guys? The, w the way I see it, if they sort of control 70% of the market, they are the go-to platform to sell a company, right? If people come to you, it means they're not going to them anymore, right? Is this more a defensive move? They saw that the sort of these are moving or they see it as a complementary sort of service? A, um, and so there's another one. Same with dealers. See, the customers that come to you, the sellers that come to you are normally the ones who went to uh, horizontal or vertical, let's say, classifieds and sold their businesses or they're normally the guys who went to dealers and sold their cars. Because if the ones, they're the ones that went to dealers, the dealers would definitely give them a lower, let's say, estimate or an offer than what they're buying on your platform, right? So by coming on your platform, they're actually cannibalizing their own business in a way, if it's not in addition to the business that they had, right? Sure. No, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, first of all, I think that OLX's investment, not just in India, but, you know, into FCG, was very much a... First of all, they're minority stakeholders, right? So they're just as if any other investor. So I think the primary bet, at least from my understanding, and I think I'm correct on this, is um, because the business is doing well and it's a good investment. But I think that the, in terms of the strategic angle, it made a lot of sense with their classifieds. I mean, OLX, for those who don't know, which is 100% um, subsidiary of NASPERS. NASPERS is a $180 billion company that's the largest shareholder of Tencent, for example in China, but also owns a lot of other businesses around the world. 
Um, OLX is the largest classifieds business in the world. So they, in 44 countries, operate the leading or one of the leading horizontal classifieds where you can list any object and then, you know, just like Craigslist in the U.S. or Gumtree or whatever. Um, and the core difference between horizontal classifieds and even vertical classifieds in the developed market versus the developing market, so for example, U.S. versus India, is that people don't pay for listings in developing countries nearly as much. I mean, in India, for example, OLX has spent over $100 million in marketing. That's a massive amount of money just in marketing, TV ads, whatever. But they don't make much revenue because people don't pay for premium listings. Like somebody that's selling their car or a dealer listing their car is usually a mom and pop person who's not going to pay like 10 bucks to have their listing up top. They would rather go through the brute labor of posting every 10 minutes such that their thing is always on the top. So they, they make very little revenue for the amount of traffic they generate. And so if you think about monetization, which is at the end of the day the core theme of these businesses, is in India, for example, anybody that's going to list their car on OLX India will now be redirected to sell instantly via FCG. And so they'll own a piece of us, and so that's obviously lucrative for them. They've captured that same consumer, but now they've made revenue out of that consumer. And so that's really important for them. And then secondly is that every time a consumer purchases a car, we'll offer the, or a dealer, excuse me, purchases a car, we will offer them the ability to basically list directly on OLX to sell it. Because we already have the details of the car in the app. So it'll be a very seamless experience. Um, so that was the investment thesis. Um, the second question, which is, um, what was the second question? Dealers. Dealers, the cannibalizing their, their, their business. It w it's a very unreliable source of traffic. Someone driving to your dealership to sell your car to them, very unreliable. I mean, a dealer could buy five cars that way in a month, one car or 10 cars. And so for them, this supplements any channel that they're using previously. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so they're not, they're, not, they're not going away from what they used to do, but this is, this is above and beyond that. Hi, I have one more question. Um, I don't know if this has already been answered before. So from what I understood, <laughs> um, the people in the countries where you're already active, they list their car, then they sell it on the platform, and the dealers, they buy it. So I just wanted to know if there's also the possibility for dealers from, for example, countries that are nearby. Can they also buy them? So for example, you said you're, for example, in Indonesia, is there the possibility for people from Thailand or dealers from Thailand to buy those cars and transfer them to Thailand and sell them there? That's a great question. And the short answer is yes. I mean, not yet on us, but Auto One, for example, here in, in Germany, a huge company, very successful. They, um, they do precisely that for European Union. So you can like buy a car, like, or you can sell your car here in Germany, but it could have been bought by a dealer in Poland. And, um, And the EU is very good about, you know, no taxation on that transfer. Internationally, that doesn't exist in many places, the zero tax. Um, and so sometimes by just importing a car from another country, you end up, basically, it's, you have to pay so much that you're not going to make a margin on the car. So some, sometimes it's not possible. But, you know, we're piloting that in Latin America, for example. So we're in many countries, in four countries in Latam now. So we're piloting basically company, you know, dealers in Colombia buying a car from Mexico or vice versa. So, uh, so yes, that's a, that's a great question and, and hopefully hopefully soon. Hi, Sujay. Uh, so you were telling like you were behind a guy for more than four and a half months, uh, like spending some time personally to meet him and getting him on board. So how do you hire the guys who are like below him or like attract talent who's like, who's on the field, who's like, they may not know about FCG or like, they just want to get into some startup wave or something. How do you like attract them and how do you reach out to them? I'm very sure you can't reach out to them personally, like each and everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's why you have to start with hiring the best CEO in each market, and then they end up driving the process internally. I mean, frankly, the CEOs of Colombia and Argentina were hired by this guy who runs LATAM, and not me. And so I did an interview with them, but he's the one who sourced, you know, 20 candidates for each one, and then ended up uh, surfacing the one, same in Chile. So um, so I think, I think it just stems from great leadership on the country level. Yeah, I'm not going to hire a mechanic and... Abuja, Nigeria. What do I know about that? So, um, but I think if you have enough good talent on the ground, they'll figure it out. What is your outlook on uh, profitability per market? I mean, I think I think that that's that's obviously the core metric we we look at. Um, you know, and then one step above, one step after that would be 
profitability, including cost per lin, which is not increasing because that should be like relatively flat over time. Um, you know, I think for us, basically, our target is that a business should hit profitability within two to three years. And, um, and then obviously the businesses that started earlier will hit profitability versus faster than the ones that started later. So I think we're seeing that now with our earliest markets. And then, um, you know, whether we can keep replicating that, it'll be work in progress. I'm just curious, how, how much st staff do you have in each country? How, how large is your organization? Um, in Berlin, we have about 60, 65 people. I should say in Europe, we have about 60, 65 people. We have a very small office in Sweden. Um, globally, just above uh, 1,100. But in, in Nigeria, for example, or in like in specific countries, how, uh, um, how large are question. the operations? Um, India, Colombia, Argentina are very small right now because they just started. Um, but like say in Nigeria, for example, we have probably like 270, 280 people. Uh, Mexico, probably about 220. Um, Pakistan, yeah, yeah, S similar numbers to that. And kind of like there's a there's India, pa Colombia, and Argentina are like 15 each. Because they they start in the last three months. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.